Dylanol Coronelli Cole are a pair of bright stars in our Paralympic squad heading to Rio. They are two of our most successful athletes. Ellie, the current world champion in three events. Dylan, the number one ranked player in his sport. Together, they have five gold medals from London 2012 and Beijing 2008. And now, they've set themselves new challenges in Rio. Ellie and Dylan, welcome to Off The Record. Um, you know each other a bit. You go back, I believe. Yeah, we do. We started swimming together back when we were about 10 years old. So I used to swim before the other sports and uh, grew up in Melbourne together, going to the Junior National Games around Australia. So I guess we do go back. You're both in your mid-20s, both Paralympic champions, both going to your third Paralympics in Rio. You've crammed so much into your life so far. What's driving you? I guess it goes quite a long way back for me. I, I remember watching the Sydney 2000 Games and I remember sitting on the, on, in my lounge room and looking at athletes that looked very similar to me in terms of, you know, they had, had amputations and they were doing something great in their sport. And so I always said that I wanted to do that and I think for the next, you know, 10 or 15 years I trained towards being a Paralympian but not only just to go to the Paralympics but I really wanted to win a gold medal. Dylan, you're attempting to join an elite group with gold in two separate sports at two different Paralympics. I grew up playing both tennis and basketball. I went with the basketball in Beijing uh, as part of the Australian Rollers when we won gold. And yeah, I've always had that urge to go back and play tennis. If I can, you know, make that history in the process, it will be incredible. Ellie, you'll be in the pool in Rio, the 100 metre freestyle. There's been a barrier that you'd like to break. I set the goal after London that I I wanted to be the first female S9 under the one minute for the 100 metre freestyle. I'm not sure if I'll get there by Rio, but I definitely want to end my career under that one minute uh, mark and hopefully, I guess, raise the bar higher for the next generation of Paralympians as well. It hasn't always been straightforward, has it? Life? No, definitely not. I think for a lot of people with disabilities, you know, it, it is tough at times. I know from my personal experience, um, I was born with a tumour wrapped around my spinal cord. So if you take a small melon, chop the melon in half, stick half it on your back. Uh, that's how I was born. And the surgeons decided to remove that tumour when I was three days old in order to save my life. But it was a bit of a risky surgery and because it grew into the spine, they had to cut through the spinal cord. So it left me a, a paraplegic. And I was in and out of hospital uh, non-stop till I was about three and a half years old. Ellie, your story's quite different. A big change came for you as a toddler. I was actually diagnosed with cancer when I was two and underwent chemotherapy for a year and that turned out to be unsuccessful so my leg was amputated as a result but uh, my parents were unsure of what my future would hold because they didn't know anybody that had a disability and they didn't know what my life was going to be like. You've got a twin sister which Brittany so that how did that play out? When I was diagnosed and had my leg amputated, she thought that she was going to have to have her leg amputated as well. So I guess we were really in it together from the beginning. And having a twin sister, I was so lucky. You know, she taught me how to walk again. She taught me how to ride a bike. She taught me how to rollerblade. And I guess she gave me the mentality that, you know, you've got people here by your side that are going to help you through anything that you want to do and just give it a go. Dylan's brother, Zach, plays a role in his development. Zach gave you a bit of hard love sometimes, didn't he? Yeah, he did. Uh, he's without a doubt my best mate in the whole world these days, but safe to say he definitely wasn't always because we used to um, share a bedroom in our house and our mum would wake us up on Saturday and Zach would always, being able-bodied, get on his feet, run in the lounge room and pick up the remote control. We used to always fight over the TV remote, as kids do. So when he'd go to the bathroom, I'd always crawl over, 
pick up the control and thus I had the power in the house. But uh, after a while, Zach cottoned on. So he'd get up, he'd get up, get the control, go put on top of the refrigerator where I couldn't reach it, look back at me and laugh, come back and watch TV, you know, like nothing ever happened. And I used to cry and sook to mum the whole time. But retrospectively, it was the best thing that ever happened to me because it would have been very easy for Zach to, you know, feel sorry for his sick disabled brother who's never going to walk again, you know, and give me whatever I wanted. But he didn't care that I was in a wheelchair and he didn't treat me any differently. Well, you started swimming at such a young age because of rehabilitation, really. That's how it started, wasn't it? Yes. <laughs> I've actually been swimming since I was three years old. Swimming didn't come naturally to me at all. I was actually going around in circles for quite a while, obviously having my leg amputated. Um, I wasn't exactly stable in the water, but what was really important to me growing up through swimming is that I was never in a disability class. Or I was never in a class for people that were different. And so although I was in a class with people with two legs, I just thought that, you know, that's how fast I should be swimming and I should always be aiming to beat those people even though they're more able-bodied than I am. And I think that's where my success has really come from, is just from that very, very young age, always wanting to be the best in the pool no matter what. Kids can be cruel. What was it like growing up at school? How tough was it? Dylan? Yeah, well, as you said, primary school kids are, are, pretty, are pretty accepting, I think. I love playing sport. I, I used to bat the whole lunchtime. I'd sit in front of the stumps. The kids would bowl it. It would hit my wheel and they'd go, LBW. I'd go, hit the wheel, mate. Sorry. <laughs> I would just bat. You'd have to aim for these little yeah, kid I'd legs. just bat the whole lunchtime. <laughs> you'd, be, you'd be mad with him, wouldn't you? And everyone felt bad. It's like, oh, I'll just let him bat. I'd right, just right. say that's just Dylan. Yeah, exactly right. <laughs> but, yeah, and then, you know, when you go to high school, uh, everything becomes a lot faster. I was embarrassed to be have my disability, I think. You know, my friends weren't inviting me places, things like that. And I remember I sat there one day, I, one of my mates had a party, and so I went to the front door and knocked, and my mate said to me, mate, I'm sorry I didn't invite you, but I just didn't think you could get in my house. And, you know, from that day on, I decided never to let, you know, my wheelchair get in the way of anything that I wanted to do or never to be embarrassed about my disability again. Ellie, do you have any stories from school that stick with you? I do, actually. Um, I walked into my, my drama class and I was kind of gazing around the classroom and my eyes fell on this one boy and he wouldn't stop looking at my leg and looking up at me and looking at my prosthetic leg and looking at me. And then straight away he just yells at, hey, pirate, come over here. And I was, you know, I just rolled my eyes and, and I thought being in drama class it would be the perfect time just to take my prosthetic leg off and throw it at him like a javelin. So this prosthetic leg goes hurtling through the room and it hits this guy right in the stomach. And I think from then, just a, a wave of fear went through the whole school and nobody wanted to mess with me from that day. People are really timid about our disabilities. Uh, people, my friends, like good friends, might not have even known why I'm in a wheelchair unless they watch, you know, a, a, a TV show like this one. There's still that stigma with disability that they, it's just the unknown factor. Yeah. And I think, by the Paralympics, especially being on commercial free-to-air TV on Seven for us, it's just going to normalise disability and mainstream it, uh, which is just incredible for us, for the for the next generation of Paralympians, but also for the four and a half million Australians with a disability. Dylan, you're a top-flight junior tennis player. Tell us about the transition, though, to a basketballer and your aim to go to the Paralympics in Beijing as a 17-year-old. Yeah, I mean, ever since I was a kid, all I, I wanted to do was go to the Paralympic Games. I thought it was going to be tennis, Bruce. I was uh, number four in the world, under-18s, when I was about 15. And one day, a guy called Sean Gonowegan, who played basketball for Australia, said, you've got to come down and, and play basketball. 
I said, Shawnee, I've seen basketball. I'm pretty soft. I like getting a tan. I want to stay for tennis. And he goes, come on, stop it. Come play basketball. I've got um, big hands and a six foot four arm span, which is conducive to good basketball. And uh, when I was 17 years old, and I got the call from my Australian basketball coach saying, Dill, mate, we want you to go to the Paralympic Games in, in Beijing. And I just couldn't believe it. So you get to the final. So it's pretty tight and we're getting towards the end. So it's big stuff. Now, do you want to have a look at it? I want to, I haven't seen yeah, that. I want to have a look at it. Talk me through it, Dylan. Oh my God, look how bad my haircut is. It was a packed stadium, just unbelievable. It was so full. We were down by a few at half time and we came out in the third quarter. I just can't, I just can't believe that we even had that opportunity. We almost didn't, didn't make it. So proud of one another, what we'd achieved. Mate, it's, it's, it's like the best moment of my life. And I remember, yeah, I've seen my brother cry twice in my life. First time I hit him in the head with a spanner when I was six and he thoroughly deserved it. But the second time was when I won a gold medal. And I've never been hugged so much by my dad in my life. My mum, mate, it's, uh, we're privileged to do what we do and to get the ultimate success, not many people get to do that. What a moment, eh? Unbelievable. You return to Australia, it's 2010 and the rollers are rolling. You guys win the world championship. Well, we, uh, an Australian team had never won the World Championship. We'd won the Paralympic gold in Atlanta, but, and then obviously winning it in Beijing. And we backed it up in 2010, and we became the hunted after that day. And it was a, a lot more pressure, and people were truly, really trying to you know, gun us down when it came to London. Your second Paralympics, London 2012, and the Canadians get you guys back in the final. This time it was a silver. They did, they won by a handful of points, and uh, I'm not, ashamed to say that I've never cried so much in my life when we lost that gold medal. And it, it sounds hard for people to understand, but yeah, I didn't win silver that day, I lost gold. Some soul searching for you, Dylan, after London. You went backpacking around the world? How do you wear a backpack? Yeah, on the back of your chair, and you always tip out when you go over <laughs> cobblestones, so it's not fun. But uh, I saved up all the money I could, and I went backpacking around the world, uh, predominantly by myself, but also with a few friends throughout America and Europe for about seven months, and it was, an absolutely incredible experience. I learned a valuable lesson uh, when I was traveling. I couldn't have done it without the help of complete strangers. And I realized if you need help with anything in life, just ask for it. And 99% of people will give you that help. And it was, uh, <laughs> I probably bit off more than I could chew. I got myself into some sticky situations. I got mugged in Chicago. I thought no one would ever mug a guy in a wheelchair before, but it happens. It really opened my eyes to a lot of things and made me realise what I wanted to do, and for me, that wasn't playing basketball anymore. From that silver medal in London in 2012, you go back to tennis your first love, and you're winning the Aussie Open. Yeah, Bruce, to have a Grand Slam in your home city, 10 minutes from your house, with thousands, and I mean thousands, of your friends coming down to watch, it's, I'm um, honoured to have that opportunity, and, and to now lift that Australian Open trophy at home in front of my friends and family, everybody that supported me throughout the years. You know, it's, it's, it's just incredible to, to think that that happened. In 2015, another big dance. It's the US Open final. And that match is played before Novak Djokovic and Roger Federer. It's pretty awesome stuff. Oh, it really was. So we were um, on the court next to Arthur Ashe, so the equivalent of Rod Laver Arena. And uh, there was a, that was starting at four o'clock. We started at midday, so we should have been, you know, well done before them, but 
It was a four-hour absolute classic. And we had the whole crowd that was about to go in and watch Roger and Novak play was at our court watching. You know, it's nerve-wracking. But to have that environment where you're actually in the, you know, inner sanctum where people are watching you, supporting you at the US Open, pretty lucky, very cool. From tennis to crowd surfing, all these, I mean, there's nothing the guy can't do. I only did that because when you watch, I love music, I'm a big music fan, and to, when you go in the mosh pit, all you can see is people's backsides, mate. You can't see anything. And then one day my mate, they stand on one foot on each wheel and look over, and they say, do you want to get up there? And I thought, oh, all right, we'll give it a shot. This was in a festival in America, and um, the artist playing Jay-Z stopped the show, gave me a shout-out from the crowd, so then from then on, I was hooked, and uh, I think I've created a monster, though, Bruce, because there's people in wheelchairs crowd surfing left, right, and centre. I know, I see it all the time now. Yeah. God, you're so good at name dropping, too. Yeah. <laughs> Ellie, when did you start taking swimming seriously? To be honest, I, I don't know when the defining moment of, of me becoming an elite swimmer was. It was something that I grew up with and I guess I just always wanted to improve. A big inspiration for you is the South African superstar Natalie Dutois, this incredible swimmer. You get to compete against her at the World Championships in 2006. So how old are you then? I was 14 then. So I remember the week that Natalie all of a sudden started turning up in the world rankings. She, she'd had an accident on a motorbike and she started swimming. She was already a champion swimmer before her accident, but then she started Paralympic swimming and then all of a sudden she was just dominating the world ranking list. And so we went to our first world championships in South Africa. It became my mission for the next half an hour to find where Natalie was because I wanted to see her in the flesh. And I remember she was swimming in lane zero, swimming up and down, and I was just standing there wide-eyed looking at this champion in her own right, swimming up and down. And it became my biggest goal to beat Natalie. Your first Paralympics is in Beijing, same as Dylan's. You come out of Beijing with um, medals, I think three in total. Um, between Beijing and London, you change coaches, Steve Young, and you really love working with him before tragedy struck. I just thought he was the best thing since sliced bread. He said to me one night, though, that he has never missed a training session as a coach. He's been a coach for 15 to 20 years and he's never missed a training session. And then I go to training the next morning and Steve wasn't there. And I'm rolling my eyes, I'm cracking a bit of a tantrum a couple of hours later and I got a phone call in the gym and it was from the CEO of Swimming Australia and he told me that Steve had had a stroke during the night. It turned out that he didn't have a stroke, he actually had a grade three brain tumour and that he wouldn't be allowed back at work, back on pool deck and it was terminal, so he wasn't going to survive it. And heading into London, I was so worried about him that I, I couldn't think straight in training. But, you know, Steve said, I really want you to go over there and I just want you to swim. Like I've shown you, just give it your best shot. And that's what I was thinking about when I was walking out onto Portek in London, was him back at home. I really wanted to make sure that I gave that one shot to him and that I swam for him. Also in London, it was Natalie Dutois' last race. It's a 100-metre freestyle. She said something to you before that race. When we were getting ready for a 100 metres freestyle, we were having a bit of a chat about life. And then I can kind of see her thoughts going elsewhere. And I said to her, like, oh, what are you thinking about? Like, you look a bit... I wasn't trying to suck her out, but... Uh, <laughs> I'm like, oh, you look a bit, you know, worried. And she's gone this is it, this is the last time I'm ever going to race in swimming. Like, she's had a swimming career that spans 10 to 15 years and 
you know, this was it. And then I realised, sitting there, like, wow, it's really special for me to be a part of this moment, you know, her last ever event. She's an absolute living legend. Should we take a look at that famous race? I remember, I actually remember this race very, very well because I was breathing towards Natalie on the way down and I could see that we were even. So I haven't actually seen this race. I, like turned I turned third, what yeah. a comeback. <laughs> but I remember it was about 25 metres to go. I thought, just get to the wall because I could see this Spanish girl next to me. And I thought Natalie was well ahead at this stage. So I just wanted to come second. I said, if I get in front of this Spanish girl, I'll come second. Smashed him. So um, I was very, very surprised to win that. Oh, that's nice. I know. I was devastated for her. An incredible race. Four Paralympic gold medals in London before a double shoulder reconstruction. Now, with the experiences that I had before London, with my coach and with my shoulder injuries, I didn't want to see the water ever again. So I went and decided that I needed to get shoulder reconstructions and I had to get both of them done. And I got a second opinion um, from a surgeon in Sydney and he looked at my shoulder scans and he said, oof, these don't look good. You know, they're a bit rough around the edges. We need to operate on these, but I don't think you'll be able to swim again after the operations, ever. I sat there and I just burst into tears. It was so embarrassing. So I went in two days later for my first shoulder reconstruction and I remember waking up out of surgery and the first thing I wanted to do was get into a swimming pool. And they said, no, you have to wait at least six weeks. <laughs> but I was so excited to, at the thought of becoming a Paralympian again. And I didn't realise how hard it was going to be. I, I basically had to start from scratch. It took me about three or four months just to get my arms moving over slowly. And then as soon as I got that done, it was go. Channel 7, we're really proud to be broadcasting the Paralympics for the very first time. You both go into Rio as favourites. How does that sit with you? I don't know, like, it's, it's strange. Dylan was mentioning before that it's really hard to be the hunted one. Usually I've been the hunter. I've been chasing Natalie my whole career. And now all of a sudden, uh, I'm one of the favourites heading into Rio. But, you know, it's strange. I, I think I've still got the same mentality that I did when I was 10 or 11. I just keep, I'm just training, always trying to better myself every single time that I train. And when I get to Rio, I'm just going to remember that. Bruce, I just can't wait. That's one-on-one been... -on -one battle? Oh, I've spent a long time coming and uh, as I said before, I've left no stone unturned to, to win that gold medal and I, I'm not nervous at all. I'm just so excited to get in that village, to share it with the whole of Australia, you know, what it's like to be a Paralympian and to, to go there, you know, hoping to be number one in the world with all my friends and family, you know, I'm, I'm coming home with that gold medal. It's all I want to do and I cannot wait to get there, compete, play, who knows what's going to happen beyond Rio. So I'm just thinking about September 9, which is the first serve. Beyond Rio, Ellie, are you thinking about a switch to basketball in Tokyo, perhaps? <laughs> if you need some it's tips, the, don't it's, ask me. It's the rumour going around. I'm just going to shoot three-pointers like Dylan yeah. all day and hopefully one of them will go in. Um, I'm, going to, I'm going to do a little bit of wheelchair basketball after Rio just for fitness reasons, but I, I do want to be a swimmer in Tokyo as well. Okay. We'll see. But you never know where anything's going to lead you. I never saw myself going to Rio, and I am. So who knows what's going to happen in Tokyo. And do you ride off into the sunset if you win a gold medal in Rio and maybe defend that US Open? Yeah, it's the million-dollar question I keep getting asked, but um, I, I'm not sure, Bruce. I can't give you a straight answer. I, all I'm thinking about is that gold medal. Uh, I love tennis and I've still got the itch, but 
a lot of other opportunities have, have, have arisen for me. Uh, I really want to get a job in mainstream media uh, as a TV radio presenter and, and change that perception of uh, people with a disability in a mainstream sense. And I'll use the example, hopefully it doesn't happen, but imagine if someone in your position was in a wheelchair or if Malcolm Turnbull was in a wheelchair or something like that, when a kid went to school or somebody went for a job application, when they turned up with a disability, it wouldn't be like, oh, that's different because people would be more accustomed to it. Finally, what's the best bit of advice you'd give to a young kid with an obstacle in their way, whatever that might be? Well, the way I see it is that everybody has those struggles. Everybody tends to put limitations on themselves and everybody puts doubt into their minds. It's just part of being human. And, you know, whether you have a disability or whether you don't, you are always going to have those obstacles to deal with. And the way I look at it, and I think the way most Paralymp Paralympians look at it, is that you've always got two sides to look at. You know, you can always look at the positive effects of anything and you can always look at the negative side of things. And I think that something that Paralympians do really well is that we tend to obviously focus more on positive aspects. It's really up to you whether you want to choose the positive side or whether you want to choose the negative side, for sure. Yeah, I think for me, one of my favourite quotes is, you've got to buy a ticket to win the raffle and you've got to put yourself out there in situations which might make you uncomfortable or you might not be used to. And what I call it is becoming the best version of yourself. Would you change anything, guys? No way. I'll probably work on that haircut I had in Beijing, but apart from that, I'm, um, life's uh, amazing right now. And, and to be able to get that opportunity to share it with Australia come September, uh, on, on, on Channel 7, mate, it's going to be unbelievable. The best thing about when people are going to tune in, when I walk into a bar or a restaurant, people think, oh, there's that guy's in a wheelchair. Instead, they're going to think, how good is that guy's backhand? <laughs> or how fast does Ellie Cole swim? And that's how we view ourselves. And I can't tell you how excited I am to share that with everybody because we're passionate about it. And I know that Australia's going to be passionate about it as well. We are. We're all excited. Congratulations on what you've achieved so far and the challenge ahead. Thank you. Thanks, Bruce. Thanks for having us. It's a pleasure.